Hello and welcome to this GCP short all about the captive formation process produced in collaboration with the state of Vermont. Over the next 20 minutes you will hear from Christine Brown, Assistant Director of Captive Insurance at the Department of Financial Regulation and Jim Gerardin, Founder and Managing Director of Amethyst Captive Insurance Solutions. Christine and Jim go through what roles the regulator and captive managers play in the process, how the inclusion of third-party risk or different captive types can have an impact, and the typical timelines involved. But first, Christine provides an update on captive formation activity in Vermont up to October 2020. You know, 2020 has been such a challenging year in so many ways, and insurance just seems to really have fallen right in line with that, unfortunately. It has been touched on in some of your other podcasts, Richard. People really are having a difficult time with their um, renewals and negotiating in the commercial market. They're faced with increased premium or reduced capacity and lack of availability and coverage. So, you know, captives are very quick to respond to uncertainty and can play a really critical role during a hard market. So we've seen um, some substantial growth this year in captive formations. Just to throw out a couple of numbers, to date, we've licensed 39 captives, and this is compared to 17 captives at this time last year. And, And I would say last year is a pretty typical year for captive formations in Vermont. And in that 39 captive number, we don't include protected cell formations because they aren't licensed entities in Vermont. But we've also formed 28 um, protected and incorporated cells this year too. So we've been really busy. Yeah, that's well. So seventy odd entities, if if not if if uh, thirty nine actual licensed captives is, is a really impressive number, Christine. Yeah, uh, and and I imagine that will just go up, you know, from now between the end of the year because often the, the last quarter is is your busiest quarter. Have you seen any patterns or trends in these formations with regards to kind of industry sectors or specific risks that captives are looking to write? I wouldn't say we've seen any trends per se. Over half of the formations have been pure captives with strong parents, um, again, looking to increase retentions or take a layer of coverage in their overall insurance program. And they, you know, formally fund it through a captive. The industries really do vary widely. We have, you know, our standard manufacturing, healthcare, transportation. Um, We're also still seeing quite a few construction and real estate companies. And we've also worked with a few companies in the gig economy, uh, which really has been interesting to learn about their unique insurance needs and how a captive can fit in and help. You know, for the most part, I would say the coverages also are pretty standard, general liability auto liability, workers' comp, property, professional liability, really the kind of stuff that we generally see in captives. You know, the rest of the formations have been scattered among our different types of captives. We've had a few sponsored captives, one risk retention group, a couple of special purpose financial insurers. And then this year, we also licensed our first agency captive, which actually Jim brought to us. Um, And that was an interesting uh, application review. Thanks for that update, Christine. It's always nice to provide that update to to listeners so they can hear exactly the kind of activity we're seeing on the ground in jurisdictions and, and different domiciles. 
Jim, obviously, it sounds like the uh, Vermont Department for, for Financial Regulation has been very busy uh, in terms of captive formations. And as a captive manager, you obviously play a role in that. I'm sure you've been very busy this year as well. When it comes to submitting a new captive application, what does the captive manager need from the client and need to do in advance of submitting that application? To, to expand a little on what Christine as well, we have looked at coming into 2020, we knew it was a fairly hardened market condition across the sectors, but we're experiencing the same thing from healthcare, MedMail, construction, cargo, and marine. Same as she said, we, we were looking at travel and industry. We we're looking at financial sectors, life and annuity, um, and even uh, some of the newer economies. So we, we have a gig sector captive that's in the middle of formation now. We also even we're looking at some cannabis related type uh, malpractice risks. Um, so it really has been across the board as far as the different industries involved. So when we're submitting a new captive application, it's really a process, right? First of all, the application itself is is fairly straightforward. The, the DFR, the Vermont Department, has a very comprehensive web, website with all the forms and data that's required. But more importantly, I guess, by the time we reach application submission, if you will, we will have completed an actuarial study, which would include the loss forecast underlying the contemplated risk for the captive program. Um, the plan and the study will, will be complete before usually we get to application, obviously, because application is a fairly brief process compared to that planning stage. For us, and I, th I think for any uh, manager like ourselves, we are putting a, a big emphasis on the captive owner and the sponsor's profile. So what we mean by that is we really need to assess the business operations that are coming not only in the captive, but as well as the parent company attributes, the organization's financial wherewithal, for example, um, you can have situations where a an organization has is really new to the self-insurance. That's not so frequent with the very large ones, but maybe for those that are kind of coming into their own, especially with these hardened market conditions, they are looking at larger retentions and many that are just not being rewarded for their good risk management in these hardened conditions. So there, it is driving a lot of the formation activity. But with that also, you have these new prospective owners that we need to assess their quality and character of that owner before they uh, get to application stage. So we will take a close look at that with risk management, uh, look at their capital profile and make that assessment on a less formal basis. But part of the application process is a more formal um, process that the department requires and that's through the biographical affidavits of the directors and officers and the key players that are gonna be managing the programs. Christine, I'm sure you can elaborate, but you know we we view our role during that pre-application stage as both a client advocate and a first line of defense for you. Uh, we're vetting the efficacy of the program, but as well, we're reiterating the importance of fostering, maintaining an open and transparent relationship with the DFR. Yeah, Jim, thanks. Um, actually, I was just going to get into that with the open communication. We really see that as one of the most important aspects of effective regulation. And you guys as captive managers play a, a vital role in making sure lines of communication stay open. So Dave, Sandy, and I often refer our, to ourselves as is kind of the gatekeepers of the Vermont Captive Division in that we review the applications and vet programs before they uh, get a license and, and are approved to operate in Vermont. But I'd say even before this step, the captive manager really is the first stop and the real gatekeeper in bringing business to Vermont. So, you know, we rely on our approved captive managers 
as you said, Jim, to vet the programs and the parent companies, make sure you'll, I'm sure, get into their risk appetite, the availability of capital, um, and as you said, even just the, the risks that they want to ensure, um, whether it's a frequency layer, severity layer, uh, there's many different aspects involved in uh, the captive formation decision, but captive managers are really the consultants that help a company decide whether a captive is right for them. You know, as regulators, we really can't blur the lines into a consultant role. So when somebody comes to us, you know, our first recommendation really is for a company to go, you know, find an approved captive manager to talk to because you, as a captive manager, Jim, and all of our other approved captive managers really do understand what we're looking for, understand what works in Vermont with our laws. And I would say you guys are kind of facilitate the whole process. You gather information from various parties and put it into a nice package that you know we're looking for um, to comply with our application form. And, you know, the form is pretty, I guess, straightforward and, and describes what we're looking for. But one important thing to remember with the application is if there's any information that maybe is is not necessarily a line item on the application form, but something that you think would make sense for us as a regulator to know. Um, for example, just like why are they forming a captive? What, why is a company forming a captive? And just you know, some of the issues that they've experienced to date, or as you mentioned, Jim, you know, their loss history that they've, they've just not been able to take credit for their good loss history is is something that we see frequently. Those things are great to provide in the application package with the business plans to give us an overall sense of the company and their insurance needs. Another part of that process too, Christine, and I know that over the years, we had this uh, pre-meeting requirement. Um, and there was, so it used to be, we would always bring the prospective owner of the captive, whether it be the group or the, you know, the lead advocates, if you will, of the program. Um, and those that can demonstrate that they can control the outcomes on the losses and really understand it. We would, we would come to Vermont every time. And now we really kind of gauge the importance of that pre-meeting and the degree of the importance of that meeting. It sort of depends on the program. So, you know, we will oftentimes you want to have the meeting even before you start feasibility. For example, like maybe we're breaking new ground in, say, uncharted risk water, so to speak, whether it's a new risk or a new risk management process. It may be critical for Christine and her team to to meet the subject matter experts, the folks that are really going to you know, control it. And also, you can have times where you have a fairly new enterprise backing the captive, and so it, has, it really does, has a lack of operating history, or you might have a new risk manager uh, new risk management. When I say risk manager, that could be anyone that's leading the charge for the captive and advocating formation of it. Um, so you might have new risk management and and maybe, uh, but a, an organization with a long established track record. In, in any of those scenarios, you'll have profiles where um, it can be very beneficial for both parties for the for the DFR to be able to put their questions and answer you know their questions to the folks early on. Um, and that helps also the risk manager to get the sense for, you know, we're, we're, we're experts at this. We can say it all day long, but for a new risk manager in front of their C-suite, it can be very helpful for them to hear it from the horse's mouth, so to speak, right? To say that we've met with the department, we've gotten 
our tentative green light, as long as we stick to our plan, we should be okay. And that gives them the confidence to be able to move forward with their own internal organization. So that's pretty important too. So really, whether we meet or not, there's a lot of factors that kind of play into that. I agree 100%, Jim. Um, We really do always encourage companies to meet with us prior to submitting an application for the reasons that you just outlined. Um, It, again, goes back to the importance of open communication and building relationships. Over the years, we've always had those meetings in person, but lately we've been doing them virtually and it's actually worked out really well. It saves on travel costs, but we still get to see see everybody kind of around a virtual table and discuss the, the captive program, the proposed program and kind of work out anything that might be an obstacle before an application is submitted. So uh, they are really, these initial meetings are really setting the stage for what we expect going forward after a captive's license too. You know, we, we really do pride ourselves on the relationships that we build with our captive owners and want to be certain that there's a level of comfort where a company can reach out to us both when things are going well, but also when things might not be going as planned. And it's always easier to do that when you have a relationship built and kind of can trust that we're not here to be an obstacle, really. We're here to try to, we want to see the captive succeed. So you had mentioned that captive that we formed earlier this year, that agency program, which kind of brings up what we're seeing trend-wise, you know, more more almost third-party like risk coming into programs. Uh, new risks, um, but they have third-party elements. And that certainly can uh, create a different approach than your standard self-insured comp, GL, auto type, liability risks, those which we're fairly familiar and we can get a handle on with our actuary. Um, these third-party risks require you know, more scrutiny and uh, from, our, from our perspective, more coordination as well. So on that third-party side of it, uh, from a scrutiny perspective, it's kind of a matter of degree, right? Depending on the nature of the risk, whether the client's ability to control or have influence over the outcome, that's pretty critical to anything, any risk, but as well as th- with third-party risk, even more so. And another very high threshold, important question to ask is, you know, is it commercial third-party or is it consumer type risk? How close to the fire do you get, so to speak, with consumers? And the closer you get to that, then more scrutiny is definitely involved. It's fairly common for third-party risk to be brought into an existing program, and that's just a matter of materiality. How material is third-party risk relative to the bigger program? But on the coordination side and timing side, if it's the, the nature of the captive is has a third-party element to it, um, you're going to need a fronting carrier. And that, in and of itself, creates a whole new profile because now you have a timing perspective there, which we know can take it can take months to even possibly a year to get a carrier properly lined up. That partner requires a degree of coordination, right? We have to um, we have contractual conditions surrounding the premium pricing. We have to pin down the loss projections. We have risk assumptions. We have loss and claims handling, uh, licensing of the agent. We have collateral and just ongoing premium kind of rate making and meeting the carrier's uh, regulatory requirements, just those ongoing requirements that front brings to the table. So on that side of it, you know, we're kind of talk about the the typical captives uh, with the application process, but when it comes to third party, it's it's not as typical. 
Yeah, thanks for pointing all of that out, Jim. Um, we have seen definitely an uptick in interest for third-party risk. And I guess right up front, I'll say we always, our first look is always to make sure that it fits within our law. And we definitely don't want to cross the line to kind of like a commercial reinsurer with the fronting program. So that control aspect that you mentioned at the very beginning is, is critical and really um, an important piece of what we look at when we're looking at those kinds of risks. And again, like you said, that definitely takes um, a more, we take a more detailed look when we're looking at risks that aren't necessarily supported by a large um, parent company that has the financial wherewithal to infuse capital if things go wrong. Um, There's a whole lot of consideration that goes into any kind of group captive or program where there may be some outside parties that are hurt. You know, one of the big the main questions that we always ask is who gets hurt if things don't don't work out right. So, and when you're looking at certainly any kind of consumer risk, um, that generally is something that we we don't like to see in captives. You know, unless there's a real uh, model like like an agency captive, but even then, the agent is um, kind of in control of that business. So that was an interesting captive application to review, and it did take a little longer than our standard thirty uh, day review that you know that we typically take to review a captive application. Just uh, just very briefly, when you look at the regulatory requirements of various domiciles, uh, prospective owners will be looking at things like uh, application fees, maybe insurance premium taxes, and even uh, comparing minimal capital requirements. It's important though, isn't it, Christine, to remind people that when you when people look at to compare domiciles, particularly if the word minimum is there uh, in, in the description, it obviously means it's a minimum for a reason. Is it important to remind people kind of what those actual minimums mean when they're in practice? This is something that we've had to remind people of quite a bit. And the minimum capital requirements, the way that we look at them in Vermont is really that they are the floor. So if you fall below this level, you're considered insolvent. Um, So when you're working through a feasibility study, it's really important to ensure that there's proper funding from the start in order to have kind of a buffer built in there for, you know, things if they don't go quite as expected. So determining capital funding requirements, there's a lot that go into it. You know, the business plan, lines of coverage, retained risk, how conservative pricing will be, and and even whether the program is fronted with collateral requirements. So, you know, we want to make sure a captive has a buffer, especially during the first couple of years when results are uncertain, just in case things don't pan out quite as they expect. And what are the typical timelines for a captive formation and does that depend on uh, the types of uh, the types of captive structure that they're applying for? Sure. So our typical timeline is 30 days or less. Some can go a lot quicker. As we've kind of alluded to during this conversation, we hire consulting actuaries to review a feasibility plan and um, they have a couple of weeks to do their review. So we're coordinating on our end too to get the application review done. But we our standard process takes 30 days. For a special purpose financial captive, the the timeline is extended a little bit and it's it's actually 60 days because there's a lot of uh, legal contracts to review um, to make sure that we fully understand the, the program and there's also coordination with other states involved with those entities. But, you know, as, as we said, you know, with the agency captive this time around and some other more complicated 
programs. That really is the, the biggest factor in, in timing. But we strive to keep it to our 30-day standard when we can. And, and I guess the biggest factor with that is getting an application that is complete. If we're trying to ask for information that wasn't included in the application, uh, that can drag the timing out a little bit. So it's important to make sure all the pieces are together when the application is submitted. Well, thank you to Christine and Jim for a very informative 20 minutes on the captive formation process, and I'm sure it will be of use to a lot of prospective captive owners as we near year end. To find out more about our speakers in this episode, please visit the globalcaptivepodcast.com website, and you can also find more information, including contact details for the State of Vermont's Captive Division, by checking out their Friend of the Podcast page as well. There will be links in the episode description. In the meantime, stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives.